Over the last few weeks, we've been highlighting this theme, maximum impact in a post-Christian culture. The whole idea is how do we, moving forward, as followers of Jesus, impact our culture, a culture that's changing, and arguably it's not only post-Christian, but perhaps even anti-Christian. Today, there's a foundational passage we want to look at out of John chapter 15, and Caitlin Baumert has lovingly, graciously volunteered to read for us. So, Caitlin, why don't you come on up to the uh, platform? Uh, What we do here is we uh, read the scripture from the middle of the room. If you'll stand and face the middle of the room, uh, it symbolizes how central scripture is to this place. So, Caitlin, when you're ready, John 15, 1 to 11. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that I'll be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Good deal. Thanks a lot, Caitlin. You can have a seat. And here's the question of the day. Um, How do we maximize our impact in uh, increasingly post-Christian culture? There's several options, perhaps. We could... Uh, We could declare war on this evil culture and these evil people out there. That's certainly an option. Not saying it's legitimate. Some have already done that. Uh, We could uh, construct a Christian bubble to which we would live within. We would never have to deal with those people, but it would be a controlled environment of Christians and Christians alone. Actually, some of us do that uh, indirectly already. Or my personal favorite, we could meet somewhere in the South Hills and just stay there till Jesus comes back. And just share our resources and camp out. All in favor say, yeah, we don't want to do that. It's NFL season's coming. Um, obviously, silly responses, but here's the challenge. In an increasingly post-Christian culture, we're called to impact this culture Uh, And it's going to be tougher than it has been in the past. There's just a a sense of anti-Christian culture going on out there too. And I don't want to overstate persecution in the light of all the people we've heard stand on this platform and talk about real persecution. But nonetheless, um, we've talked for the last few weeks about um, uh, how to maximize our impact as worker priests in the marketplace or at school. We've talked about how we... uh, change our perspective of of building friendships and relating to family, all given this uh, potential of truly impacting our circles of influence and situations and circumstances. But I want to come back to one of those ground zero passages today that 
is really the premise upon which our impact is built. And that is this, unless we have a relationship with Jesus that's dynamic, that's growing, that's intimate, um, the rest of this stuff just isn't going to happen. You don't conjure up commitment to a culture unless you have a purpose and reason for it. So we go back to this vine teaching, and uh, I, I wanted to just highlight as we begin Jesus says twice in this passage, he, he, um, he claims to be the vine. He says, I'm the true vine, I am the vine in two different instances. And uh, I don't know if you, that rocked your world or not, but, but first century times, it would have rocked the world of the people who heard them because Jesus was claiming, I'm the new Israel and I'm the Messiah. And they probably knew exactly what he meant by that. And it was radical, it was extreme, it was revolutionary. He was talking about the people of Israel. Time after time in the Old Testament, and you can check this out later, the vine was used as a metaphor to describe the people of Israel. Let me just give you one uh, passage to, for starters. This is what the psalmist says about of the vine and how it relates to Israel. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. God's people are a vine planted by him. God brought them out of Egypt, planted them in their own land. The whole purpose of the vine, Israel, for their redemption, was that they had been chosen to bear fruit, to bring praise to God, to honor God, and to impact the world, to become a blessing to the nations. However, if you know the Old Testament at all, it didn't quite happen like that. In fact, later in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah describes Israel, the reality of the vine. In Jeremiah 2, look what he says. This is God speaking. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? What the prophet is describing is this tenuous relationship, this rejection of God by the people of Israel. And Jesus now is claiming to represent the first of a new people, which ultimately would become Jew and Gentile a fresh start, where the people of Israel fell short of God's honoring him and blessing the nations, Jesus would succeed. It's a big deal. Everyone would have gasped as he said, I am the true vine, as you did. Didn't you? Not. I mean, we've heard that verse over and over. It was a radical, revolutionary teaching. Not only that, by the time the first century came around, the term vine was another term used for the coming Messiah. So Jesus is killing the proverbial two, uh, two birds with one stone. He's announcing the new Israel has arrived and the Messiah is here by saying, I'm the true vine. Jesus is announcing to us, he's the focal point of the faith. He's the fulcrum. He's the ground zero of what we do and who we are in Christianity. The source of life itself, both here and for eternity. There's a few other um, vine teachings, and these are more practical. He goes on to say, branches are totally reliant upon the vine. Again, this will not rock some of your worlds, but understand. Uh, th this is what he says in John 15, verse 4. He, he uses this word, remain. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fr fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you... You, you catch the drift of the passage. 
There's something about this term. And when you go back to the original language, the, the Greek, and you study what remain means, and, and for those of you who grew up with the King James or old NIV, it's, they use the word abide. But the word remains, remain literally means to set up camp, to take up residence. Remaining in this passage is de about deciding where we belong or more precisely with whom. See, every one of us here today remains somewhere. We set up camp somewhere. Um, in life, we have several options, and most of us choose similar options. We remain in our work, a lot of us. Work begins to define us. We find the ultimate purpose in our work. We become slaves to work in some ways. We become workaholic in some cases, but we remain in our work, and it defines the rest of our lives. Some of us remain in our kids, if we have good kids. We remain in our kids. We do everything for our kids. We want our kids to have everything we never had. We won't miss a game. We won't miss a beat. We, we want to do everything for our kids. We remain in those kids. Some of you are now remaining in your retirement and loving every minute of it. It shapes your schedule. It shapes your priorities. Everyone remains somewhere. And where we remain shapes everything else. And here's the distinction Jesus was trying to communicate. When I remain in Christ, it's he that shapes my identity, my purpose, and fundamental reason for living. And so the question this morning, I just want to ask you, is where are you remaining? With whom are you remaining? Hey, this is a great time to check in. It's September 3rd, in case you didn't realize it. It's September. Remember the summer? Let me, let me ask this humbly. Is your faith stronger today on September 3rd than it was on June 3rd because of where you remained? Has it been a good summer when it comes to faith? Your relationship with Jesus, this abiding in the vine stuff we're talking about this morning. Are we farther along in our devotion to Jesus than we were on June 3rd? And if not, the question is, what happened? Well, we remained. We kept busy. And I'll guarantee you, by and large, it was good stuff, great stuff. That's why this is the foundational conversation about uh, who we are and what Jesus means. Um, I think the question of the day is to what degree are we remaining in Christ? And what Jesus is saying here is you never outgrow this need for reliance for this remaining. See, if we're nominally committed to Jesus, uh, we're not going to remain in Jesus. Jesus won't matter. In fact, through the course of the week, you don't even think about Jesus. Why would you? Oh, you're a Christian. I understand that. If I'm not remaining in him, maybe I pay him a visit once in a while. Uh, just when I need him. If we've been a Christian for a long time, one of the spiritual hazards is slipping away from him, living out this religious independence based upon living with our own set of priorities, schedule, and the busyness drift that's the great scourge of our faith these days. You know, when we got the news, Christy Pickett had acute leukemia a couple weeks ago. Suddenly, a lot of people in this place got really reliant on the vine.
It's what happens in crisis when we're struggling. I love Christy's faith. You know, when she first heard and we talked, she said, you know, I, I know God's got this. That's Christy Pickett. So in our hour of need, we reconnect to the vine to get some of that life, to get some of that energy, to some sustenance. The, the challenge is when things are going well for us, how connected are we? I think what we tend to do as Christians is we take our branch and take a hike, the Brian branch. I don't have a branch here, I don't wanna mess with this. But if I had a branch, the branch is only gonna be sustained, it's gonna live so long if it's not plugged into the root system or the vine in the case of Jesus' illustration. And yet how often do we just live with our own branch and walk around with the branch and we do a lot of good stuff, but ultimately, ultimately miss the energizing life of remaining in the vine. Here's the challenge in a post-Christian culture. In a post-Christian culture where the secular worldview has Christians swimming upstream against the majority rule, see if we can sustain a commitment to Jesus independent of the vine. The community matters too. We all matter to each other. It's why community of faith is more and more important moving forward because yours will be the minority report. Yours will be the minority opinion if it's based upon God's word. But especially in a post-Christian culture, it's awfully difficult for me to speak up and endure criticism or opposition just because I believe in Jesus and I believe what God's word has to say if I'm not plugged into the vine. There's a pruning primer <clears throat> in this passage. <clears throat> and I know at least one vintner, and he, I didn't want to have him get up and speak today because there's probably a lot that he could say, but here's the story of pruning. The truth about pruning, it's for the benefit and not the detriment of the branch. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. If, if you want a branch to produce, you have to prune the branch. So how do we know when God is pruning us? The answer, in those moments, in those seasons, when we find ourselves more reliant on the vine than normally, it may take the form of a new teaching that we, we stumble upon, whether we're reading it or whether in church or wherever, and this new teaching that causes us to go a different direction, make different decisions than we have in the past. That's pruning. Perhaps there's an aha moment. We say, man, I didn't know that before. I need to make sure I follow that rule, follow that command, follow that encouragement. It could be a season of difficulty. A lot of our pruning takes place when times are tough. Parents, wouldn't it be great if you could ensure that your kids never had any setbacks, discouragements, or problems? What would that be worth to you? They would never have to experience any diverse adversity at all. Imagine that. Well, quite honestly, I think a lot of us parents try to clear the path as best we can for our kids. But how many of our life lessons haven't come in challenging moments? Some of the pruning. I would prefer not to be pruned that way, but in the adversity and the challenges, God seems to do some of his best work. It's not how he works all the time. But pruning is to our benefit, not our detriment. 
And, and then this last vine teaching is that producing enduring fruit is the consequence of remaining in the vine. And again, John 15, 5 says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In, in the fifth verse, it uses the term much fruit. You'll bear much fruit. In the 16th verse, he'll say, he says, you'll bear fruit that will last. But what Jesus is saying, fascinatingly, is we can't produce any fruit by ourselves. We can't produce any fruit by just trying harder. We can't simply get our fruit on. That's not the way it works. If we want to bear fruit, we all only have one option, and that is to remain in Christ. And then he says this, which you might say is highly arguable. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Reflect in your life. Apart from Jesus, you've done a lot of stuff. You've accomplished a lot. You're a successful person. You may be a wealthy person. You've got a lot of friends. In reality, we can do a lot apart from the vine. We can be good people. We can have a great career. We can raise families. We can make millions of dollars. We can climb Mount Bora. We can root for the bears. We can do all sorts of things in our own strength. And things might go very well for us. That, that's the apparent contradiction in the passage. So why does Jesus say, apart from me, you can do nothing? There's one thing we can't do on our own apart from Jesus. That is, we can't produce kingdom fruit if we're disconnected from the vine. See, branches can't do that independent of the vine. We can't produce the depth and level of obedience, the consistent obedience, without the strength and empowerment and the life of the vine in Jesus. We can't be, in terms of our behaviors and attitudes and relationships, we can't offer the consistent Christ-likeness apart from the vine. We won't maximize our influence as Christ followers disconnected from the vine. But it's so tempting because, I don't know about you, but I'm a doer. I want to do things. I want to fix things. And sometimes I leave Jesus behind. It's interesting that there's fruit that each one of us bear routinely. It's the fruit of my spirit, to coin a term. Things like wealth, popularity, relaxation, success. Those are the fruit of the Brian vine. And I live life enjoying life with those fruit. But see, then Jesus says there's something above and beyond that. Not that those are bad things, but he says, listen, the fruit of the Jesus vine are things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness. Fellas, gentleness. How many guys you know are gentle? That's not a male quality. Don't want to be sexist here, but gentleness. When we remain in Jesus, we are by degrees, transformed. We're changed. Not only that, the people around us are impacted, in many cases transformed. Situations we're a part of are transformed for the better. That's what kingdom fruit looks like. And that's what happens when we remain in the vine. 
especially in a post-Christian culture, into the chaos of Hurricane Harvey, of the political environment in Washington, you name it, in the midst of all of the chaos, we're the ones who bring shalom, peace, into a culture of criticism. Have you voted anyone off an island lately? I watch The Voice, I know how that works. I've never been more critical about vocalists than I am today. Not these folks, of course, but into a culture of criticism, we bring affirmation and optimism. Into a culture uh, with a sliding scale of morality, we bring consistent standards based upon God's word. People that remain in the vine are obvious in today's culture. We have never been more noticeable, friends, as followers of Jesus than in a post-Christian culture. And when, I be, when I'm remaining in Jesus, I begin to attempt things explainable only by the presence of Jesus within me, appropriating the power and equipping of the Holy Spirit, that this supernatural, mystical presence that I have because of my walk with Jesus, that equips and empowers and counsels me, And remaining in the vine over time will produce fruit, and this is the point, that is lasting, it's enduring. And we may be called to invest into lives that we ordinarily wouldn't be caught dead with simply because we know it's the call of Jesus. And we may not bear immediate fruit. There are some of you investing in people and you're not seeing one inch of change, one, one uh, amount of change whatsoever, but you're gonna keep investing, you're gonna keep blessing, you're gonna keep trusting and hoping because you're in the Jesus vine. And when you're in the Jesus vine, we endure. See, producing fruit that endures these days takes, get this, endurance. There's no quick fix. You know, we have over 125 uh, adults and teens involved in our kids' ministry and youth ministry. Um, they met last Sunday night for a leadership training. And uh, many of you are involved in kids' ministry, youth ministry. Bless, I bless God for you all the time. But when you're doing kids' ministry, you're buckling up for the long haul. You're taking the long view. You're, you're trusting that what you're doing there in the nursery in second grade, sixth grade, eighth grade is going to bear enduring fruit when you're changing that diaper of that one-year-old. And they're not asking Jesus into their heart at the moment. You're trusting someday they will and someday, someday they do. It's about this fruit that will last. It's enduring fruit. I've shared on more than one occasion about my grandma Vreesman. She's in nobody's who's who list. She was a cleaning woman. She did laundry for wealthy people in Muskegon, Michigan. She's nobody. But she had such a strong faith. Times were tough for her, really tough, beyond the economy. An alcoholic, abusive husband, for starters. Things were tough for her, but she loved God, she loved Jesus, and she maintained, I think, she remained in the vine. And I don't know what her day-to-day -day experience, her week-to-week, month-to-month experience was, and her faithfulness to God, but one of her five kids uh, grew up and became a pastor. That was my dad. 
And then one of his kids grew up, and you'll never believe this, became a pastor in spite of what he knew about being a pastor. And then one of this guy's kids grew up and because of a rough spot in youth ministry here, stepped up to the plate, and he became a youth pastor. That's what fruit that endures looks like. And you may not even see the fruit in your lifetime, but you keep remaining in the vine, trusting that you're creating fruit that will endure even beyond your life. Now, with all due respect, I hope you had a great vacation, but what do you have after vacation's done? Pictures, videos, and great memories. And I hope you had great vacations. That's not enduring fruit. We're talking eternal implications for the fruit. We're talking about transformed lives with the fruit. It's why the cause of Christ is sustained for 2,000 years and will last for the rest of time and eternity. Who is it in your family tree that had a strong faith in Christ and to this very day is bearing fruit that endures through you? Some of you have godly grandparents, parents. Some of you, this may be a whole new deal. You may be the first generation that's going to start bearing fruit that endures. But don't ever, ever underestimate the power of your faith and commitment in sharing the good news of Jesus, of living out the good news of Jesus. It will become enduring fruit, perhaps for generations. See, maximum impact in a post-Christian culture involves taking the longer view, investing for long-term impact, not necessarily for instant spiritual gratification. Back in the days, you could go door to door and reach people for Jesus. They'd respond because they came out of that Judeo-Christian heritage, and all you had to do is have one conversation, and wham, bam, they're, they're saved. It's so cool. Now with a secular worldview coming out of a pluralistic culture in terms of religions, it's going to take longer. There's a longer journey. Uh, there's more options. You're going to have to commit to the long haul in relationships, in situations. And I don't know that we can do that independent of the vine. Let me just say this, this second point that maximum impact in a post-Christian culture is first and foremost about our intimacy with Jesus, not about our activity for Jesus. I struggle with that one personally because I, I do a lot of activity for Jesus. And every once in a while, I find myself empty. The weight of ministry gets to me. And when that happens, I know I'm not remaining in the vine and I need to go back you see, the first step to remaining in Jesus is to simply believe in him. And the fundamental purpose, by the way, the book of John, the entire book, is, is having read it that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we might have new life. Listen to this. This is the, the, kind of the summary statement in John's gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in the book. I think that's pretty cool. There's a lot of other stories we never heard. Someday, maybe we can get a glimpse of that in heaven. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, that you may believe and have life. And it all begins there. It's the launch pad 
for this Christianity thing, for following Jesus. If you've never made that initial commitment to Jesus, that's where it starts. That's where you plug into the vine. And Jesus has already said, listen, you don't choose me, I choose you. I choose you. So the starting place for remaining in the Jesus vine is believing the message that Jesus is the Savior of the world. If you've never made the commitment, it's not a theologically profound or complicated statement you have to make before God. You just say, Jesus, I believe in you. Forgive me of my sins. I want to be part of your kingdom. I want to be a follower. And you've just plugged into the vine that gives life, real life. The second step in remaining in Jesus is to deepen our relationship with him. Again, it's a fundamental that is so often overlooked. Um, here's the postmodern truth of the day. I have developed a deep personal relationship with my phone. How about you? Uh, don't worry, you are all there somehow. You still matter somewhat. In a way, I take you with me. In a, in a way, I'm in a relationship with so many of you since you are in my phone. And you are my friends. This check was you're all my friends because you're on Facebook. Understand what's happening here is that our transformation from relational people to device people has happened within a decade. We are device people today. Today, if you're not carrying a, a smartphone, you're either countercultural or you're just old. <laughs> Sorry. What does it mean for us as an entire culture to shift almost overnight from a society in which people walk down the street looking at and responding to people to one in which people walk down the street looking at and responding to a machine? Do you think that dings us a little bit? It's fascinating. We wouldn't always be clutching our smartphones if we didn't believe they made us safer, more productive, less bored and more useful. I was recently reading a study, and you can argue this one, please, not with me, uh, but you can argue it. Studies show that Americans check their cell phones 221 times a day. It's every 4.3 minutes for you statisticians. Go ahead, argue that point, and then do your own self-evaluation. I'm telling you, we are people of the machine. It's always also interesting that in a similar survey, related survey, nearly half, nearly 50% of 18 to 29-year-olds said they used their phones to do what? Avoid others around them. See, we still have this capacity to intimately communicate with someone, but we're ignoring the necessity and I wonder if that isn't true with our relationship with Jesus. That's why I take the, the rabbit's trail. I think we're really comfortable without an intimacy with Jesus. I don't think we expect a lot out of an intimacy with Jesus. I, I love the story of the five-year-old little girl who had disobeyed mom and had been sent to her room for time out, as good moms do. After a few minutes, uh, the mom went in to talk with her about what, what she'd done, and teary-eyed, uh, the little girl asked, why do we do wrong things, mommy? 
And mommy said, theologically precise, sometimes the devil tells us to do something wrong. And we listen to him. We need to listen to God instead. To which the little girl sobbed, but God doesn't talk loud enough. Can you relate to that? All of the other voices of culture that we hear drown out the voice of Jesus. The voices of culture, we hear these things routinely. Buy me, use me. This product will make you beautiful, will make you healthy. You're only one purchase away from fulfillment. Those are the voices of culture. You know the voice of Jesus? Take up your cross and follow me. You wonder why that's not selling. I don't know that I care to take up my cross and follow anybody unless it's someone who's died for me and has offered me a new life today and for eternity. Now that's something I'm willing to consider. It's about knowing him, his word through his spirit. He says in John 15, 3, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. We see that God's word makes the branches clean. How much do I know? How much do I know about Hollywood celebrities? Uh, quiz me about the Chicago Cubs. Qu quiz me, or I'll quiz you, the latest political direction. We know a lot about a lot. How much do we know about this Jesus who we claim to follow, about this God who's created the universe we claim to worship? We develop in intimacy first by knowing him. And to remain in the Jesus vine, secondly, we, we experience him, and often through solitude and prayer. And I ask myself, when's the last time in this room, or, or me personally, have, when have we truly experienced the presence of Jesus? When have you walked out of here saying, oh, something happened to my heart? I just know he, he said something, he called me to do something, See, solitude is simply conversing with Jesus, just having a conversation with him. I love what Chuck said last week. It's part of this passage. This is not about the master-slave relationship. Jesus calls us his friends, and I converse with him as we would a friend. And also in this passage, it says one of the benefits of experiencing Jesus is joy. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You can have joy by remaining in the vine. How joyful are we these days? that my joy may remain in you. And we can have joy because of the abiding presence of Jesus when we remain in him. And then the last uh, way to connect with the Jesus fine is by responding to him through acts of obedience. Let me wrap up the passage that we didn't read this earlier. Uh, because when we're knowing him, when we're experiencing him, uh, this is what happens. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Now, how about that line? This is my command, love each other. When we believe in him, 
when we know him, when we experience him, we are quick to respond to him. Uh, We're asked as followers of Jesus to obey him. And when we're connected to the vine, closely following Jesus, or, or taking these steps that deepen my intimacy with Jesus, we begin to become like him in attitude, in behavior, in relationships, how we relate to people. And intimacy with Jesus is about that knowing and experiencing and responding. And here's the problem in a post-Christian culture. Uh, They're really not interested in what you have to say about your faith because everyone has their own truth. And my truth is no better or worse than your truth. They will not listen to your words first. They will simply observe how you live. And when they see a follower of Jesus who remains in the vine, talking differently, relating differently, eventually they're going to ask, now what's this about? What are you doing? How can you do this? And you say, thanks for asking. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus. You go home to your friends and family, you go back to work and you impact as best you can, the culture and your circle of influence for Jesus. But the way it's really going to happen is you want to plug into the vine first. That's where the strength is. That's where the sustenance is. That's where the life change is. And when Jesus transforms us because we remain in the vine, you'll begin transforming the people around you. Just watch. It's been going on for 2,000 years. Pre-Christian culture, Christian culture, post-Christian culture. And right now, regardless of where we stand, culturally speaking, we just want to remain in the vine. We want to stay with Jesus because Jesus is going to stay with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, just ask this morning that if anyone's grappling with this faith question that they've never really committed themselves to Jesus. Lord, your spirit works in really strange ways and obscure and sometimes obvious ways, but just bless them with the knowledge that they can commit their lives to you and everything's going to change over time. Uh, They're going to be made new. They're going to be renewed. They're they're going to find a new reason for living, a new identity, a a new long-distance view of the future. And Lord, that they're going to bear fruit beyond their wildest imagination. Father, for those of us that have been at this a while, uh, I pray for renewal to break out in this place, one life at a time, because we remember it's not about what we do, it's about who we are in our relationship with you. And Lord, we thank you so much for the greatest opportunity in all of time and history, uh, bringing the good news of the gospel into a culture that needs good news. To bring light in the midst of the darkness is why we've been called. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.